The human heart is an idol factory. That's what one of the most thoughtful Christians to have ever walked planet earth, in my opinion, said. The human heart is an idol factory. Why on earth would any thoughtful person say any such thing? Well, I think they would because when you learn about people in the Bible, believers and unbelievers, and when you talk to people in the 21st century, unbelievers and believers, it's amazing how many opinions there are about Jesus. It's absolutely amazing. And it's amazing how many of the opinions don't match with what Jesus did and what Jesus said. It seems that we do have a bent toward creating God in our own image according to our own likeness and It's pretty troubling. And so what we're going to do today is what we do every Sunday. We're going to look to Jesus, what he did and what he said, so that we might move from hopefully being idol worshipers to moving to being worshipers, worshipers of the one true God. That's our desire. That's what we want to do. Jesus himself said that to worship, we have to worship in spirit and in truth. And so we're on a quest to leave idolatry behind, hopefully, and to be true worshipers who bring glory and honor to God and live lives that are lived in light of who He is. And so if you have a Bible, you can turn to the 17th chapter of the Gospel according to Matthew. We're going to look at the second half of this chapter today. And as we look at it, we'll find three different scenes, three different scenes that are provocative, three scenes that are perhaps surprising, Uh, They challenge our common perceptions. Three scenes that I would, to be quite honest with you, would never choose to preach on, I don't think, uh, if we weren't studying through the gospel account. Because they're odd. They're strange. They're provocative. But actually, I think that's a good reason why we should look at them, so that I don't think Jesus is strange. I think Jesus is Jesus, and I need to get my, my... thinking in my heart in line with who he actually is. And so I hope that's what happens this morning as we look at these scenes. Um, Let's go ahead and begin looking at the first perception-challenging scene, and we find it in verse 14 and following. If you'd look there with me, it says, And when they came to the crowd, they, the disciples and Jesus, came to the crowd, a man came up to him, up to Jesus, that is, and kneeling before him, said, Lord, have mercy on my son. Literally, in the Greek New Testament, have mercy on the son. Which sounds kind of strange, but what he's probably getting at is, have mercy on on the son of my family. Have mercy on our only son. For he has seizures. And he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And so imagine this father who's brokenhearted and burdened on behalf of his family. Not only does he have a child who has seizures, which is bad and would be bad and would be heavy on a parent's heart, no doubt. It's demonic in origin, we're going to find out. So it's it's not just bad. It's demonically bad. 
to the point of self-destruction in the water and in the fire. It's awfully bad. And I want you to know, as you would anticipate, Jesus is going to help. And Jesus is going to show compassion. And Jesus is going to bring wholeness and restoration. It's why we look to Jesus ultimately for ultimate wholeness and restoration. This is a preview of glory. But there's a twist. So I wanted to give you the heads up before the twist. The twist comes in verse 16. This man says, And I brought him, his son, to your disciples, and they could not heal him. And I think we should read it that way on purpose. I brought him to your disciples, and they could not. This is a big problem because we've already learned that they have been given the power and the authority to do this. So chapter 10, verse 1 is where we learned that. Chapter 10, verse 1, And he called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. And so that's what I wrote in my margin, 10.1. They have been given, they can, and they have, and now this man says they can't. And so there's a problem. That's the twist. Jesus is going to help, but not until after he rebukes his disciples in a big way. And so in verse 17, when Jesus answers, it says, and Jesus answered, I think for understanding it correctly, and I think you'll, you'll buy into what I'm saying here, we should put in our minds Jesus with his gaze fixed upon not the Father, Not the sun, but his gaze, his stern, somber, serious gaze fixed upon the disciples. He's not upset with the dad, I don't think. He's not upset with the boy, I don't think. He's upset with the disciples, I do think. So read it that way. And Jesus answered, again, staring down the disciples, looking at them. Oh, faithless and twisted generation or perverse Inside out, wrong, all wrong, backward generation. How long am I to be with you? Why would he say that? Because he's been with them quite a long time and he keeps showing them that he's the Messiah. He keeps proving it as we, as we sing, or and or. He, tangibly, objectively, he's healing, he's bringing restoration, he's raising the dead, he's casting out demons, he's doing what the Messiah would need to do to actually be the true Messiah. He's bringing deliverance, and he came to save his people from their sins, but by way of preview and the effects of sin, suffering, death, oppression, he's been doing this again and again and again, and now we know He's closing out his earthly ministry in Galilee. Pretty soon he's going to be in Jerusalem, betrayed, suffering, dying, leaving this earth. How long, right? How long am I going to be with you? Answer is not very long. And, and if you, you haven't caught on yet, the ones I'm going to use to build my church haven't caught on yet, we have a problem. And so stern, somber, serious, oh, faithless and twisted generation, Looking at the disciples, I would suggest for sure, but he even broadens it to include the generation. An unbelieving era. Then the next question comes, which is also rhetorical, I think. How long am I to bear with you? I'm tempted to say Jesus' point is he's frustrated with them. 
But if frustration is sinful, I wouldn't want to say that because I'm a careful Christian theologian. And so he's wholly frustrated with them if there is a thing, right? (laughs) Some commentators say he's losing his patience. And I thought, I don't know if I would say that. But if you can wholly lose your patience, he's wholly losing his patience. Remember, he's the perfect sinless one. But you get the idea, right? There is a sanctified frustration. What am I going to do with you? And remember this. Remember, we've just come off of, of the transfiguration, right? I mean, we've just come off of that in chapter 17. They've seen him for who he is and all of his majestic glory, this grand preview, and they're still having a problem seeing him for who he is. doesn't speak well of the human heart. And then with compassion and kindness, I think we should read it at the end of verse 17. He says, bring him here to me. So this here, is, this here would be a shocker to many people who aren't informed biblically about who Jesus is. Jesus is not happy with everyone. Jesus doesn't think anything goes. Jesus isn't just around to make everything better. Um, However, we want to have it made better. He's not even happy with his own all of the time. So let's keep that in mind. Verse 18 then says, And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Anybody surprised by that? If you've been reading the gospel account, you're not surprised. This is just what Jesus does. This, is, this, this speaks to a form. This is the, uh, the pattern. He is the supernatural one. He's the Messiah. And when he acts, solutions come. And so we would expect this of Jesus. Malachi chapter 4 says, when the Son of Righteousness comes, he brings healing in his wings. It's a figurative way of describing Messiah. The Messiah will bring healing. He will come again to save his people from their sins, to bring atonement and reconciliation. But he also will bring cure to the effects of the fall. Okay? And when he was on earth, he was bringing a preview of what will happen in glory where there's no more tears at all. But he's proving that he's the one who can do that when he's here on earth. So this is why we, even though we're not there, we're not with them, this is why we trust in Jesus. This is why we put our confidence in him ultimately because he's the one who can bring forgiveness and restoration that can last forever. We look to Him as the Christ. Before we move on, I guess I would want to acknowledge God's providence and point it out to you. God's providence is where God it comes from a word provide. But in Christian theology, we talk about providence. It's not a miracle, um, but God is still orchestrating things and he's in charge of everything. And he's, uh, like Romans 8 would say, he's causing everything to work together for good to those who love him. And so God's providence is a sweet, sweet reality. And I'm thankful, according to God's providence, that these spiritual knuckleheads uh, dropped the ball and got it wrong. Because it is a good reminder to us when spiritual leaders, even the highest of high spiritual leaders, um, act like spiritual knuckleheads, um, Jesus Christ never will. Okay? So when the leaders fail, they cannot, right? You look to Christ and Christ does and will and is faithful and trustworthy 
And so we, we, we need to remember that. And so I'm in that sense thankful for their stumbling because it gives us an opportunity to see Christ for the one we ultimately need to be trusting in. Then we transition a little bit and it says in verse 19, we probably should read this quietly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately, right? Private. And said, why could we not cast it out? They've done it before. They've been given the authority and the power and now we can't do it. So, so Jesus help us. But as some people like to say, be careful what you ask, right? He's going to tell them. So in verse 20, it says, he said to them, because of your little faith. For truly, I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. From everything I can read, that was a common saying in the first century with these Jews and they would have understood what he meant. A figurative way of speaking. If you have basic faith in the one true living God, Yahweh, you can accomplish anything, right? The key is the right kind of faith. You can move mountains. I don't think he's calling them to be contractors, by the way. Um, just, it's a profound way of stating things. We need to trust in God. That's where the answer is. That's where the power is. Confidence in Him. Now, little faith kind of seems strange that he says it that way because earlier in chapter... So that's in verse 20. 20 you, you, your little faith, that's the problem. But I think it's actually worse than that if we interpret that little faith statement in context because in chapter 17 he said faithless. It's a little faith that's a broken faith. It's a little faith that's faithless. If we also allow chapter uh, verse 17 to interpret it a little bit, it's a twisted faith. It's a, it's a, it's a perverted faith. It's a wrong-headed, backward kind of faith. So it's faithless faith. Seems weird. And then a twisted faith. But even notice here, when he says little faith, then he goes on to say, if your faith is little, you can do great things. As little as a mustard seed. I raided the cupboard today, and I was so happy that we had mustard seeds. Can you see it? Um, uh-uh, you can't see it. It bounced once, now it's mouse food. We don't have mice here, ladies, just, just so you know. <laughs> The exterminator wasn't here two weeks ago, ladies, I promise. (laughs) Anyway, I digress. The problem is your faith is little, but if you only have little faith, you'll be able to do the right things. So I think we should understand as commentators do, when he says little faith, it's it's a messed up faith. It's the wrong kind of faith. It's a faithless faith. It's a twisted faith. Because all you need is a little genuine faith and you're on the right track. And so here's where it's important for me to, to remind you what I remind you of oftentimes. And that's when we talk about faith in the Bible, in Christian understanding, faith means, faith is like nothing. Faith is not a substance. In one sense, faith can't be measured. Faith is not something you go to church to get more of. Faith means rest. Faith means trust. Faith, belief, trust, rest, they're all synonyms for the same word. So really what we end up getting at is 
they don't see Jesus for who he actually is. If they saw Jesus for who he actually is, they would trust him appropriately. And if they trusted him appropriately, they would be able to take him at his word and do the things he's called them to do. This is why we oftentimes say when we're talking about uh, an understanding of Christ and Christianity, we say, this is an important statement actually. Faith is only as good as it's... Starts with an O. Faith is only as good as it's object. And in Christianity... Christ is the object of our faith. So people put strong faith in lots of things. So many people have convictions and passions and they have such strong commitments. In Christianity, faith is only as good as its object because he won't let you down. He's been raised from the dead. He he alone is the true Messiah. And so no doubt what's happening here is they've lost sight of who Christ is. That seems weird because they just came off the transfiguration. Which again, which would go to the point of the holy frustration. You've just seen what you've seen and you've been seeing it now for all kinds of time. And you can't do the things I've called you to do. Somehow, even so quickly, you've lost sight of who I am. I would be in good company to suggest to you that's what's going on here. You have faithless faith. You have twisted faith. Your confidence is broken. You've got to see me for who I am. And I realize this is the, that would be the height of crazy. It would be the height of crazy to be with Jesus, to have him give you the power, to have you do these things, transfiguration, and now you can't do it because you've lost sight of who he is. That's the height of crazy. You faithless and twisted, perverse people and generation. they asked they got the answer by way of application before we move on we're not them we're not the 12 we're not doing the same things they're called to do we're not called to do the exact same things but as the baton is eventually passed to us to promote Christ and the gospel and to protect the gospel and do Christian ministry as a local church, I would suggest to you that the best, most important thing we can keep doing is remembering who Christ actually is and what he actually accomplished because that's the key to us not having a faithless faith, having a perverted, twisted faith. If we can remember who he is, what he's accomplished and emphasize that, we'll trust in Him appropriately, rest in Him appropriately, and then out of that be motivated to do Christian ministry appropriately. Now let's move on to the next perception-challenging scene, scene number two. Verse 22 of chapter 17. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. The first provocative thing I think we should notice that is counterintuitive in pop culture Christianity is... Jesus said, this is what's going to happen and it hasn't happened yet. And then this is what's going to happen and it hasn't happened yet. And then this is what's going to happen and it hasn't happened yet. There's a script and there's a script writer. Before it happens, there is a plan, there is a purpose and there's a sovereign God who is in control and history is actually going somewhere. That's how Jesus can speak this way. 
So what's going to happen isn't because of bad luck and a wrong place, wrong time. No, there actually is a plan of redemption. That's where we, this drama is unfolding. That's how Jesus can say, this is what's going to happen, and then this is going to happen, and then this is what's going to happen. Which is exciting. Which is encouraging. I like it. But sometimes when we've never heard this before and we never thought about it before, we don't necessarily like it. It's, it's provocative. I'm thankful that it is. It's going according to plan. But now maybe we, look, we should look a little closer to what he says in verse 22. So Jesus said to them, The Son of Man, we've seen time and time again, borrowed from the Old Testament, that's a title for Messiah, Christ, King. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. And in a pat, sort of sarcastic, cynical way, what could go wrong? The Messiah is going to be delivered into the hands of humanity. What could go wrong? Think about it. Think how it should go down, right? The King of Kings, the Anointed One, the Long Expected One. And He's proven that He's the One again and again. And He just proved it. And what's going to happen? He's going to be delivered over into the hands of human beings. And what are they going to do? They should say, He's the One. We worship Him. We follow Him. Whatever He says, let's install Him on the throne. That would be sane. But instead, humanity is going to follow their hearts. This is why Christians don't say follow your heart. You follow your heart, you kill the Messiah. You do all the wrong things. They're going to follow their hearts all right and show them to be perverse and wicked. It says in verse 23, and they will kill him. That's so so wrong on so many levels and it's meant to be, but we're Christians and so we've read it so many times, we kind of think, well, that's nice. The Messiah killed. That says a lot about the human heart. It's awful. It's terrible. Thankfully, though, in light of, I'm going to quote, I'm going to borrow the verbiage from Genesis 20, or Genesis 50, verse 20. What human beings intend for evil, you know how it goes. God intends for good. Orchestrating, in charge, drama unfolding. Because we read these words in verse 23 at the end there. And he will be raised on the third day. So sinful humanity says, crucify him. Give us a criminal instead of the one who's been proven innocent. That's what humanity is going to do. And heaven is going to do something else. Heaven is going to raise him from the dead. The one true and living God is going to raise him from the dead. So thankfully, humanity doesn't win. Thankfully, it doesn't end that way. Heaven wins out. It's counterintuitive to the way we think. We crucify him. No, God raises him from the dead. And think about how extraordinary that is. By having him be raised from the dead, it's proof humanity wrong on every level. I've raised him from the dead and therefore vindicated him, justified him. That's what 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15 says. He's been vindicated. He's been proven to be righteous, proven to be the one, vindicated. I will raise him from the dead. Oh, that's great. But it's contrary to what humans think. They think he's the wrong one. Not only that, he's raised, he's raised, Romans chapter 4 says, for our justification. And so it's good for us, even though 
we didn't know it or they didn't know it. It actually is good for us. So we're acceptable before God. Not only that, he's raised because he's going to be the coming judge. Roman, or excuse me, Acts chapter 17. He will be raised on the third day. There is righteousness that wins out. There is vindication that wins out. Then 23 goes on to say, strangely, and they were greatly distressed. Now, we can read that through positive lenses. They were greatly distressed. They were greatly distressed because they, 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 they learn about his death. And Jesus has already talked about going to Jerusalem to be crucified a couple of times. Now they're hearing about, about it again. And all, all they're hearing is that. They're not hearing the resurrection part. They don't quite get the resurrection part. They're going to get it. And, and it'll set the world on fire. But for now, that just sounds bad. If we read it through negative lenses, and it's positively because they love, they love Jesus as you would and as I would if we were there with him, and so they don't want him to be hurt. Read through negative lenses, Jesus has already connected and taught that if he's going to suffer in Jerusalem, so are they, which they're not, they're not liking. They're distressed. We don't want that to happen. This isn't how, how, how we would have it unfold. This isn't the way we would plan things. This is counterintuitive to us, greatly distressed. I have a question for you before we move on. It's um, a good and helpful question, and it's this. When we read verse 22, and it says, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. My question for you right now is, who is going to deliver him? The Son of Man, verse 22 says, is going to be delivered over. And he's going to be delivered over into the hands of human beings. And we know that what, what they're going to do. So who is going to deliver him over? Some of you I've seen say God. And you're thinking like Romans 8. Good job. And my eyesight is just getting worse and worse. Did, did, did I see anybody mouth the words Judas? I don't know. Um, okay. Yeah. And I'm not a postmodernist, but both are right. Because the Bible teaches both, but not in the same way. And this is provocative. Huh. Who's going to deliver him over? Judas. Who's going to deliver him over? His father, who is sovereign over everything, including Judas. Chapter 26, chapter 26 says in verse 14, 15, and 16, it's talking about Judas. Judas is named in verse 14. This is chapter 26. And it says in verse 16, and from that moment, he, Judas, sought an opportunity to betray him. It comes from, it's the same Greek word translated betray. Our text in chapter 17 is translated delivered. It can be translated betrayed. So Jesus says the Son of Man is going to be betrayed betrayed over, if you will, into the hands of human beings. It's true. Judas does it. It's true. Judas is accountable for his sinful actions. But in Romans chapter 8, same Greek word translated into a different English word. Romans 8, such a great text that we love. Verse 32 of Romans 8, He who did not spare his own son, talking about the father, but gave, there's our word, gave, not delivered, here, gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The implied answer is he's certainly going to give us all these things. And so what we have is 
something masterful and amazing, greater than perhaps you even knew or thought. Judas is going to do this, and Judas is a bad actor. God is sovereign and orchestrating what Judas intends for evil, God intends for good, a la Genesis 50. Fascinating to think about. After the last service, there's a, a, one, a young woman who is newer, newer to the church came out and she was so happy. She said, I said both. I said God and Judas. And my friend only said God. I was so happy. I said, we're learning. She goes, yeah, we're learning. And it, and it actually is really important for us to know. It's a broken world with sinful people who are accountable And the God who is for us, like Romans 8 emphasizes, like nowhere else, is even working all things together for those who love him according and called according to his purposes. And so I take heart in that. I take heart in that, not only with the crucifixion, but in all of life. And I hope you do as well. I would love to, well, Romans 8.32 is amazing. The logic, since, since I brought it up, I can't help myself. The, the logic of Romans 8.32 is the father gives his son up for us. He delivers him up for us. And if that's true, and it is in Romans 8, if that's true, how will he not also surely give us all things? And in that context, all good things. And in that context, that even includes glorification. That's in, in Romans 8. And so the logic is pretty white hot. If I wanted to be super controversial, I would keep unpacking it for you and keep being fr- provocative in a whole nother way, but we might save that for a different sermon. The Father gives His Son up for them. Those He gives His Son up for will most certainly definitely receive all good things, even glorification. If you didn't just see what I did there, it's okay. If you did, Knuckles. let's move on let's move on perception challenging scene number three perception challenging scene number three beginning in verse 24 when they came to Capernaum that's also in Galilee if you think about a map at the the northern at the top of the Sea of Galilee the town of of Capernaum where Peter lives and Jesus has been using that as a ministry hub. So still still in Galilee, just a, a town in Galilee. So when they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? Some of your Bibles have a paragraph marking and, and it gives a title and it says something about the temple tax. And that's because the two drachma tax is the temple tax. So it's to keep things going in the temple. This is not the, the civil tax of the Romans. This is a religious tax, if you will, for the temple. So the, the, the temple tax. So someone comes, one of the tax collectors, and says to Peter, Do, doesn't, doesn't your master pay taxes, religious taxes? And Peter says in verse 25, yes, yes. Which would make sense. I mean, I might say yes, even if I didn't know if he did it or not, because I lie sometimes, (laughs) right? That's just like knee jerk, Um, right? I think you might do it too. I don't know if he knew or not, but yeah, he does. But I guess it would go to point because Jesus has been one who's obeyed the law. And and even if he doesn't have to, and we're going to see he doesn't have to, he has been one who's 
humbled himself and identified with the human race and doing what the human race is supposed to do. And the Jews, according to the Old Testament, are supposed to pay the temple tax. And so Peter says, yeah, I, he does. The reason I speculated like that is because he doesn't seem that altogether certain about the logic of it. And so keep going in verse 25 with me, if you would. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first. So Peter doesn't ask the question, but Jesus knows what's happened. So he speaks to him first saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? I'm asking you to think, if you were Peter, how would you answer that? From their sons or from others? If you're royalty, you don't ask your family to pay the royalty taxes. That wouldn't make any sense, is what he's saying. So verse 26 says, And when he said from others, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. You see what he's doing? He's, he, he's making a point about himself. He doesn't need to pay the tax, right? He's the son of the king of the universe, the sovereign of all creation. He's the son, so he doesn't need to pay taxes. What, what would also complement this would be the fact that on two other occasions, explicitly, he's referred to the temple as my what? My father's house. My father's house. That's what the temple is. It's in Luke's account and in John's account. It's my father's house. And so he's not actually morally obligated to pay the temple tax because the temple, the dwelling of God, is his father's house. He's, that's, a, that's a pretty profound thing to be saying about yourself, which shouldn't surprise us. Then this might surprise us in verse 27 as we wrap this up. However, not to give offense to them. I, heard, I listened to one sermon this week, and the, the point of the whole sermon on this text is um, that Jesus didn't offend people. And so we should learn from Jesus and not offend people either. So... There you have it. Let's close in prayer. Um, <laughs> but actually, what we're going to see, uh, he's purposely not going to offend them so he can really offend them. That's where this is going. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. And so two different currencies, but a shekel will cover the drachma tax and we'll both be covered. We're all good. Why do that? Do that so you won't offend them over this matter. Jesus is being calculated. Let's not offend them over this because a huge offense is coming. We can flex on this. No problem. Jesus is in charge and in control. It's calculated. Let's not make it about this. And you know what? That's kind of counterintuitive. I might say, you should make it about that. No, let's not make it about that because we're going to make it about the ultimate issue. We're going to make it actually about my cross work. We're going to make it actually about the gospel. And that's what's going to happen. So it's rather ironic in certain ways. 
Romans chapter 9, 1 Peter chapter 2, Isaiah chapter 8, all talk about the gospel, the work of Christ being offensive. And so, Romans chapter 9, verse 33, a rock of offense. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 8, a rock of offense. That's borrowed and fulfilling Isaiah chapter 8, verse 14, a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, Christ crucified a stumbling block to the Jews. Galatians chapter 5, verse 11, the offense of the cross. As we wrap all of this together, Jesus says, no, let's not offend them over the temple tax, let's just pay it. Because he knows. And the greatest offense is going to be when Jesus, by doing what he does, says, your religion is bankrupt. And so are you spiritually. And your only hope is to look to me and my substitutionary work. And that will be the rock of offense that's the right rock of offense. The gospel being the rock of offense because what is offensive to some, we would know is the power of God unto salvation to others. And if you think about how counterintuitive that is, right? What's the most offensive thing when you tell people they're not good They can't do it on their own and God isn't happy with them. There's nothing more offensive than that. It's the rock of stumbling, the stone of offense, but it actually is the chief cornerstone and by God's grace, when people see it supernaturally, they trust in Him. It's what we call the good news. It's what Psalm 118 verse 22 says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. It's actually in Christ. So I hope that's been provocative. I hope it's felt counterintuitive. I'm so thankful that our normal practice is to work through books of the Bible because I wouldn't have preached this. And to the degree that I wouldn't have preached this, I wouldn't have understood it, and you wouldn't have understood it, perhaps. And we have views of Jesus that actually need tweaking. They they need adjusting to be brought more into conformity with who He actually is so that we don't just let our hearts run wild creating idols. So hopefully it helps us to be better worshipers. I do have one announcement to make, but let's pray first. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for Omaha Bible Church and churches around the world that seek to see Christ exalted, even if it means, and it certainly does mean, that sinners are humbled. Uh, Help us to continue to know that we don't have the answers in and of ourselves, but we have to look outside of ourselves. We have to look to Jesus Christ, the perfect Savior, the one who loved us and gave himself up for us. Grant saving faith. Grant supernatural spiritual growth as well. In Jesus' name, amen.